If you remember last week, um, our gospel reading, Jesus asked a question of his disciples. And that question was, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we heard that great confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, that was last week. Right? That's not this week. Our gospel reading this week, Peter says something very different. And between the gospel lessons from last week and this week, we can observe a profound tension. There's a profound tension between Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ Right, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and his rebuke of Jesus' claim that he must suffer and be killed. So what's that tension? What's, where's the tension lie? Where is this? The tension that we see here in Peter and experience in our lives, I think each one of us experiences tension, though we don't always sense it or recognize it, is that we as Christians are members of two communities anchored in two different and incompatible stories, or what we may call worldviews, ways of making sense of the world and making sense of our place in it. Right? We're, we're members, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but yet we also live in time and place here and now as members of communities. As Christians, we are at one and the same time citizens of heaven and members of human societies and cultures, and there are tensions that exist between the two. There are tensions that exist between the story of the good news of God's kingdom and the cultural story or stories that make up the water in which we swim day in and day out. That was true for Peter. It is true for us today. So two kingdoms are at work. Two kingdoms are at work and have been at work since the fall the kingdom of this present age, and the heavenly kingdom of God. The kingdom of this present age and the, and the various expressions it takes in human societies and cultures is deeply influenced and controlled by fallen demonic forces and powers, chief among them Satan, or as he's otherwise known, the devil. That sounds weird to our ears, doesn't it? But if we believe the scriptures and claim them to be true, the revelation of God, this is the reality of our world. It sounds weird because we've been shaped by other stories. As Christians, as those baptized into the very life of Jesus, we are now citizens of God's heavenly kingdom that is breaking into these flesh and blood kingdoms of this present age where we live. As a result, we must submit ourselves to Jesus to be shaped, to be formed, to be catechized. So we could even use our sociological terms, to be socialized, to be enculturated into the very ways of the kingdom, into the very life of the kingdom of God. Nothing illustrates this need for us to submit ourselves in all areas of our lives to Jesus, to be so shaped. Nothing illustrates this more than Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Peter's gut-level reaction to Jesus' claim that the Christ must go to Jerusalem, suffer rejection by the chief elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Nothing illustrates that more than this. 
Peter's gut response to Jesus reveals how deeply rooted his formation in the ways of this present age is. Peter's formation in the ways of this present age goes deep down to the gut level, the place where our deepest held thoughts, feelings, and desires reside about what is right and wrong, about what is good and bad. Social psychologists will tell us that humans don't reason their way to moral conclusions. Most moral conclusions are gut-level reactions. Where does that come from? Where do those gut-level reactions, I mean, you know this. If you see something, it's like, you don't think about it, you automatically, ooh, or yes, or oh. You know, you know that it just comes from within you. Where does that come from? Let's look at what Jesus taught that evoked such a gut-level response from Peter. Look at verse 21. If you have a pew Bible, if you just have it, um, if you just want to listen, that's fine. Verse 21 of chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We're not going to talk about resurrection. Peter doesn't, he he can't get past the death part to the resurrection. What was Jesus teaching? Jesus was teaching that the good news of God's kingdom is not complete without the cross. Matthew communicates this clearly in the Greek by using a single word that means this is this idea, this, this connotation of a, dis, a divine necessity. It was a technical term at the time in Jewish literature, particularly apocalyptic literature. And for us in English, it might be best rendered something along the lines of, it is the will of God. So Matthew is saying, Jesus was teaching and showing his disciples that it is the will of God that he travel to Jerusalem. It is the will of God that he suffer. It is the will of God that he be killed. And it is the will of God that he be raised again. Jesus is teaching that it is a divine imperative that he go to Jerusalem to suffer crucifixion. In essence, Jesus is saying, I cannot be the Christ that you claim me to be. I cannot be the Christ apart from the cross. I cannot be king. I cannot be the long-awaited king apart from suffering. There is no kingdom of God. There is no kingdom of heaven without the cross first. Resurrection, new life is not possible apart from the suffering of the cross. The good news that death, sin, guilt, and shame do not have the final word is not possible apart from the cross. The good news that we can find forgiveness, righteousness that is not our own, justice in our world, honor for those of us who have shame, healing, and reconciliation with God and others is not possible apart from the cross. That's Jesus' message. That's what threw Peter for a loop. Recognizing Jesus as the Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah, was a good first step for Peter. But it was not the end. And Jesus would not let him, and he would not let his disciples, and he will not let us today, fill in what it means for him to be the Christ. Jesus knows that if he does not spell it out clearly, his disciples, we included, will be tempted to import 
a conception of his messiahship informed by our cultural stories, informed by our worldviews, our ways of making sense of the world, that do not fully reflect the good news of God's kingdom, but rather reflect the values and goals of this present age. Jesus knows that this danger is always lurking in and around the church, in and around his people. Because we live in two worlds. We live as citizens of heaven and citizens of this earth. Peter falls prey to this danger. Just look at verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside. That was a bold thing to do. I mean, in that world, a rabbi and his students, that's nothing a student does to a teacher. The teacher always walks in front of the students in the first century Palestine. The rabbi always led the way. You can imagine just Peter, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, Jesus saying, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer rejection and pain, and I must be killed. And Peter's like, whoa, Lord, let's, you know, sidebar for a minute here. Unheard of. Peter's audacity to do that. I want you to know, cause, so, so please, for Peter to do that, for Peter to do that, that is something that is deeply ingrained in him, a reaction. Do you know how deeply formed he was? Picking back up. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's statement to Jesus, I think, is better translated as, God is merciful to you. God is merciful to you, Lord. This failure will never, ever happen to you. He literally just says, mercy to you. Merciful to you. May God be merciful to you. This cannot happen. This certainly will never, ever happen to you. Peter reacts from his gut to Jesus' claim that he must suffer and be killed. Peter had an intuitive sense, a gut-level reaction that something was wrong with Jesus' claim. There was something wrong with Jesus' claim that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Where did Peter's gut-level intuition come from? It came from the cultural and political and religious stories he was told and retold from his childhood on through his adulthood that the Messiah the long-awaited Messiah of God would come and restore the fortunes of Israel, that the Messiah would come, overthrow the Gentile occupiers, the Romans, remove their puppet king, the Herodian king, and the collaborating high priest and religious leaders of his day. God would bring this Messiah victoriously through military conquest to overthrow the people who had been holding God's people captive. But he would also be the one who ushers in a time of untold divine blessing and human flourishing that would radiate out from Jerusalem to the whole world. Peter's gut-level intuition was no doubt formed in part by the prophetic expectation of the Old Testament of a triumphant Messiah restoring the fortunes of Israel. He didn't take into account the suffering servant passages, though, and others that speak of this. Other stories won out, like 
the revolutionaries in, in Israel's history. Like just less than 200 years prior to Peter, the Maccabeans led a revolt against the Seleucids, Greek occupiers of Palestine, and they won. They overthrew the Gentile occupiers. They, they threw out the, the, Hellenized, the Hellenized Jews. And they won back their, their land. These stories no doubt formed the imagination. They formed the moral intuition. They formed Peter's gut-level reactions that we find being materialized here in this passage. See, it's out of this received tradition, out of these stories, out of this formation, out of this catechesis in these cultural, political, and religious stories and worldview that Peter issues his rebuke to Jesus. What then is Jesus' response? Look at verse 23. So Jesus turned and said to Peter, you can imagine this, Peter's just twirled him around, comes around, he looks at Peter, you can imagine eye to eye, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, literally a stumbling stone. You are a stumbling stone to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice how quickly, notice how quickly the rock on which the church will be found becomes a stumbling stone to its Lord. Notice how quickly the rock on which the church will be built becomes a stumbling stone that tempts Jesus to abandon his God-ordained mission in Jerusalem. Peter tempts Jesus that he can be king and usher in the kingdom of God without suffering the shame, rejection, and pain of the cross. Please notice this, that Peter's temptation of Jesus was out of a genuine, I think a genuine concern for Jesus, a genuine concern to protect him. Yet in doing so, yet in trying to protect him, he falsely claimed and applied God's love and mercy. In Peter's mind, God in his mercy and love would never allow his Messiah to suffer defeat. That he would never allow his Messiah to suffer pain of any sort. And he certainly would never allow his Messiah to be rejected by the religious leaders and to be killed. That just could not happen. God is merciful, isn't he? God loves you, Jesus. He would never let this happen to you. Yet Jesus clearly reveals that claiming the merciful and loving character of God does not permit one to cancel out Jesus' clear teachings that he must travel to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. Appeals to the love and mercy of God do not cancel the cross. Claiming that God is love or that God is merciful does not give one a license to proclaim falsehood. One hears the love or the mercy of God or even the grace of God invoked all the time to cancel any number of Jesus' clear teachings, whether it's on the cost of discipleship, on final judgment, on suffering, on divorce and remarriage, on success, on money, on human sexuality. God is love. So I can do whatever I want. God is love. So my cultural stories can reign supreme because he's love and mercy. Jesus, however, however, does not allow Peter to claim God's love and mercy 
as the means for justifying the values of the false cultural, religious, and political stories or worldview that he had received and accepted. And the one out of which he was operating at this moment in his rebuke. Jesus identifies the true source of Peter's claim and temptation. Question, who else in Matthew's gospel tempted Jesus with kingship and kingdom without the cross? Who else promised God that God in his love and mercy would never allow Jesus, the Messiah, to suffer? Satan. In Matthew 4, 6, Satan tempts Jesus with these words. If you are the Son of God. If you're really the Son of God. Throw yourself down from the highest pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down. For it is written, Scripture says, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. God will not let you suffer or die. God will not let you get hurt, Jesus. Just throw yourself off the temple. Prove God's love and mercy. Bow down before me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world without the cross. That was Satan's temptation. He used the loving and merciful character of God and even God's word to tempt Jesus to abandon his God-given mission to suffer and die on the cross on behalf of sinners. The Peter who had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, a confession revealed to him by God the Father. That's what Jesus says. This is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This Peter now becomes an agent of Satan. The foundation stone of the church now becomes a stumbling stone to its Lord. That ought to wake us up. That ought to wake us up to the possibilities in our own lives of not only being citizens of heaven, but also at times working out of a story that works contrary to God and becoming agents of Satan. It ought to make us vigilant about our lives. But what are we allowing to shape us, inform us? Listen, church, this is so important. The cultural stories that shape who we are are not neutral. The song, Let It Go, is not neutral. It's not neutral. I mean, it's great, great tune, love to sing along to it. The message, the words, they're not neutral. They proclaim values and a story contrary to the gospel and the kingdom. The cultural stories that shape who we are are not neutral. They are, however, often leveraged against the concerns of God, against the mission of God in this world through Jesus Christ. The prince of this present age, the devil, Satan, and the fallen demonic powers are all too happy for us to miss the tension that exists between these cultural stories and the good news of Jesus Christ. And don't hear me saying that cultural stories, every single aspect of them is bad or wrong. I'm not saying that. But they are not the story of heaven. They are not the story of the good news of God's kingdom that comes to us in the suffering and death of Christ, in his resurrection and in his ascension, because now he reigns at the right hand of God as king. They are not that story. There may be glimmers of that story, but they are not that story. And the devil is all too happy, 
happy for us to miss the tension between them. They're all too happy for us to miss the fact that God's kingdom is different and incompatible with human kingdoms in this present fallen age. Peter's example here ought to awaken us to this tension and the potential danger of missing it. Peter had no idea what he was doing was in line with Satan. This is particularly poignant for us at this moment. It's always poignant, but particularly now it feels like. We need to be vigilant and do the hard work of coming to realize, coming to recognize and identify this tension and where it exists, not only in our lives as individuals or as families, but also within our community, the community of Christ Church. And there's tension. We can't avoid it. There's tension between the stories on the left and on the right in our cultural and political discourse today that are at odds and incompatible with the good news of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. If you're hearing this and you're saying in your heart, amen, I know exactly who needs to hear that. I'm telling you, it's you. You need to hear it. And not just you, but every single person in this church today, every single person watching online today needs to hear this. So how do we respond? What does this passage call us to? We respond by setting our minds on the things of God and not on the things of man. That was Peter's problem. Jesus says, you weren't doing it. You set your your mind on the things of man and not on God. Or in the words of Paul from our lesson from Romans, do not be conformed to this present age's pattern of thinking and living, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we begin to set our minds on the things of God through worship and word and sacrament, when we allow the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ to shape our desires and to inform and expand our imaginations about what is possible in this world, And when we submit our lives, every aspect of them, to the cross of Christ, we begin to see the tension between God's kingdom and the human kingdoms of this present age. We begin to see the tension between the good news of God's kingdom and the democratic platform. And we begin to see the tension between the good news of God's kingdom and the Republican platform. Or anything else in between on that spectrum. Or other cultural stories that are told in song, so beautifully, in song and in movies. Right? We're not despising culture, but we want to be realistic about what it's doing to us. What stories are meant to do? Shape us. If you don't think these things have a profound impact upon you in shaping your gut-level reactions and views of this world, please wake up. And like Peter, we too often all too often miss this tension because we have justified values, actions, habits, and beliefs from our cultural and political stories and worldviews that are at odds with the gospel. They're at odds with the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we do this by connecting them to bits and pieces of the truth. Bits and pieces of the truth about God and his gospel. Bits and pieces of the truth about Jesus. And we, by all means, avoid those ones that are less palatable. 
We renew our minds so that we can discern God's will in a broken world. Isn't that what, isn't that what Paul is telling us in Romans 12? We set our minds on the things of God so that we can discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that we can redeem those things that are true, good, and beautiful in our culture. Along with renewing our minds by setting them on the things of God, there is one more thing that will definitely identify the tension points in your life and mine between the values and habits of our culture, those ones that it has instilled in our lives, and the values and habits of the kingdom of God. That is the practice of self-denying love of God and neighbor. Nothing will run up, nothing will bristle up against the values of this present age more than self-denying love of God and self-denying love of your neighbor. We need to pick up our crosses daily, Jesus challenges his disciples. We need to pick up our crosses daily to follow Jesus, offering our bodies, in the words of Paul, our whole selves, body, mind, and soul, imaginations, and desires as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This means that the shape of our lives as disciples is to be, is to be defined by an all-encompassing submission to Jesus, which is expressed in the self-denying love of God and neighbor. This self-denying love of God and neighbor is expressed nowhere more poignantly and clearly than in the cross of Christ. Hence, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Tensions exist between this all-encompassing call to live the life of God's kingdom, this cross-shaped, this cruciform life, and the cultural stories we encounter every day. We must allow the story of God's kingdom that finds its center and climax in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to question, to subdue, and to govern all other stories available to us in our culture and in our society. And this is not a call to a boorish, despising of our culture. This is not a boorish call to despise culture or to live some kind of prudish life. Rather, it is God's call and God's way in this world to actually pursue life in its fullest. It is the way of God to pursue ultimate divine blessing and human flourishing, joy and gladness. It sounds like it would be not fun at all. It sounds like it does not end in joy. I'm here to tell you the, the cross ends in joy. It ends in life. As Jesus so paradoxically puts it, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. May God help us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.